You're listening to a Platforms Podcast, your source for cutting-edge, relevant Torah. Enjoy. <laughs> Hello and welcome. I hope we're all feeling well. It goes out to all of us who are here today. And from what it seems, wow, that's a, that's a lot of people in one room. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. L'chaim to all of y'all. Stay well. <laughs> I want to jump right into this. I mean, is is that okay? Parshas Chaye Sara. It's it's of course perfect and very appropriate because I just came back from a wedding. I mean, I know that all of you are looking at me like, why is he wearing normal clothing? It's because I just came back from a wedding and and a good time was had by all. Um, and and of course, Parshas Chaye Sara. If you open up Parshas Chaye Sara, you realize that it's unique in Sefer Barashas in that nothing really happens in the Parsha. So if you read, if you read Parsha's Barashas, that's, that's 15 billion years of evolution in, in, in a hundred psukim. And then you read Parsha's Noach and that's God destroying the world and creating it all over again. And you get all sorts of generations, generations upon generations happening in the Dora Flaga. And it's like unbelievable. It tells you where the, where the Ela told the shame, Etc. Etc. And then it goes to the, the children of Ham, the children of Yefes. It's fascinating. You have the, you have the entirety of the, the story of the of Migdal Bavel. It's awesome. And only then, at the very, very tail end of Parsha Snoach, do you finally meet Avraham, the first Jew, whatever that means. Um, and and I mean Lech Lecha and Vayera are awesome. It, it's awesome. I'm I'm waiting for George R. R. Martin to write the movie for Parsha's Vayera. It would be incredible. Can you imagine like the hellfire, the, the meteor shower raining down on, on Sodoma, Mora, Adma, and Svoyim? That would be, I, I think, I think the, the, the showrunners of Game of Thrones could do a whole heck of a lot of that. But, but, but the problem is then, of course, you get the Parshas Chayisara. And um, here's, here's what happens in Parshas Chayisara. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read it. Um, Sara dies. So Avram puts her in the ground and, and he finds a way for Yitzchak. And that's the Parsha. I'm not kidding. That's, that's the Parsha. You say, no, no, but Sprung, I read the Parsha. And it, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that quick because Avram didn't just like put her in the ground. He had to buy the real estate. And we went through like, like sentence after sentence of the real estate. Yeah, yeah. But you're not, you're not thinking about it the right way. The right way to think about it would be... Um, why did it have to tell you any of that? Why didn't it just say, and Sarah died, and Avram put her in the Marasama Pela, which he bought? That's what I would have said. He said, yeah, but there was a whole Masao Matan. Like, you think, what? You think you just walk in? Listen, 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 listen. If you've ever tried to bury a family member on Haram Anuchis, you know, you know that you have to grease the palms of at least 15 Israeli authorities before you can even buy it from the holder of the original real estate. Yeah, but nobody cares. Nobody cares. So you say it was $75,000 and Bubby's in the ground. That's what you say. She's in Haramanuchas. You want to go bother? She's in Gush Dalid. You make a left by Ramosha Feinstein and two rows down and there she is. Nobody's interested in how much you had to handle with the, with the guy from Brooklyn who happened to own that plot. Who cares? It's bizarre. Say, yeah, but he paid a lot of money for it. it really? Really? You're, you're talking about Avraham Avinu. The guy was loaded. The guy was loaded. He was the original Jew. He had so much money. You don't believe me? You don't believe me? It says it in this week's Parsha. For those of you who weren't there in Parsha's Lech Lech, when it said it the first time, it says it again in this week's Parsha. 
Because when Eliezer shows up in Aram Naharayim, he's like, in case there's in case there's any doubt about how much money my master has, let me let me be mefare to you. Let me go into detail. And this is fantastic. This is what he says. He says, uh, he says, you know, my master, Evid Avraham Anochi, I am the servant of Avraham. Hashem has really blessed my master. I mean, we're not we're not talking little money. We're not talking nouveau riche. I'm talking, I'm talking Vanderbilt. You feel me? I'm talking Rothschild. Rothschild. For those of you who are not familiar with the Spanish, he gave him sheep and cattle and silver and gold and servants and maidservants and camels and and. Uh, and and chamorim, uh, asses, donkeys. Why do you have to say that? You couldn't just be like, um, my master's got a lot of money. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me tell you what kind of money he has. It's, it's odd. I, mean, I think you'll, I think you'll admit it's a little bit strange. Um, so I get it. They need a lot of money, and he paid four hundred shekel to to Ephron. Nobody cares. So you understand that this entire parsha. This entire Parsha is in the details. The whole thing. It's not in the story. It's in the details. The details are the only thing that matter in the story. So let's, if you don't mind, let's uh, take a journey into the story. So Parsha begins. Sarah was 127 years and she died. And Avraham, uh, what? You know that doesn't make sense, right? You know the beginning of the Parsha makes no sense. Say, what do you mean? Sarah died. Yeah, yeah. But you see, all the other times that we talk about people dying, first we talk about them living, and then we tell you that they died. So, for example, it's going to talk about Avraham Avinu, and it says, and Avraham Avinu had all these children, and uh, and he gave them matanos. He gave the children of the Pilagshim, the children of the um, of the concubines. He gave them gifts, whatever that means. You want to go midrashically, he gave them a shame tuma. You want to go not midrashically, he gave them, you know, bada, 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 gave them some money, sent them Kaden Malaritz Kedem, Sababa, and then he gave Yishmael money, and he went to Be'er Lacharoi, and then Avram died. Zokain Vesavea Vayosef Falamov, he was 175 years old, and he died. Wonderful. And then it tells you all about the history of Yishmael. And Yishmael has these 12 Nisim, 12 princes, and he died. And they lived, this is where they lived, this is the region. They went from Chicago to the Great Lakes, and then he died. You know what it doesn't say anywhere ever in the middle of nowhere abruptly? And he died. What, who was talking about Sarah here? Nobody. Nobody was talking about Sarah. The only reason it makes sense, the only reason it makes sense to you to open up the Parsha with the fact that Sarah died is because you know that the Parsha is called Chayisara. If you didn't know that and you were reading from last week's Parsha to this week's Parsha, you'd be like, oh, okay. So God told Avraham to shech his son, Hoham. And, uh, and oh, last minute, yeah, he didn't have to do that. And then, and then Avraham gets a telegram that his brother had kids and Sarah died. Nobody's mentioned Sarah since the beginning of Parsha's Vayera. The last time you spoke about Sarah was when she had a whole laughter problem. Remember that in the beginning of last week's Parsha when she's like, no, I didn't laugh. And God's like, you did laugh. And that was awkward for her because you, know, you can't say no when it's God. And that was the last time you said anything about Sarah. It's like, hmm. weird. Okay. So Sarah dies. Um, and uh, Avraham goes, Lispo the Sarava Livkosa. He goes to eulogize her and to cry over her, which, of course, is backwards. 
it's backwards because if you've ever lost anybody close to you, um, you already know this. And if you haven't lost anybody close to you, God willing, you will. You will. Um, I say God willing, you will, because that's the way of the world, right? You're supposed to. There's a way that things are supposed to go. And Bezrat Hashem, um, at 120, all of us will, you know, put people very close to us in the ground. Um, and, and before, you know what happens before the eulogy? You cry. You don't, you don't cry after the eulogy. The people who are sitting in the hall, they cry when you say the eulogy. But you cry when you get the call, right? Right? I mean, isn't that like in the ABC? So it's not it's not Lispo the Sarava Livkosa, it's Livkos the Sarah Lisafda. To cry over Sarah and to and to eulogize her, but it's backwards. And you may have noticed that the cuff is teensy weensy in the Torah. It's a small cuff. Why is it a small cuff in Livkosa to cry over her? So so the Farshim explains unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I'm telling you, I I would never say this if not for the fact that Hazal said it, because I would be ashamed to say it. Because I'll say, Oh, you know why it's a small cuff? Because Sarah committed suicide. Sovereign wasn't that sad about her. What? I'm sorry. You made, I didn't hear right. I didn't hear right. You, you, what? Sarah committed suicide? Well, sort of, you know, because, because two parses ago in, in the Seder of Lech Lecha, Avraham takes this lady named Hagar. You may be familiar with her because she comes up again this week. Um, he takes this lady Hagar and Hagar gets pregnant and, and Hagar starts, you know, getting a little uppity. A little uppity. And, and Sarah is like, She's very upset at her husband. May God, may God judge between me and you. May God judge between me and you. And we learn from here, the Gemara says, Anybody who calls God's heavenly judgment upon somebody else, you're, you're getting judged first. You're getting judged first. Don't pick up the God phone. You don't want to, you don't want to pick it. You don't want to touch that phone. That's not a phone you want to pick up. Because whenever you pick up the phone and you tell God that he should judge Chaim Yankel, God's like, okay. Uh, so let me make let me get this straight. Elchanan wants me to judge Chaim Yankel. That's fantastic. Let's take a look at Elchanan. God looks at you first. And therefore, since Sarah, since Sarah called down God's judgment on Avraham to judge between her and him. Therefore, God judges her first. And therefore, when she dies, the Medrash says, Avraham's like, well, I mean, she had it coming. She had it coming because, like, after all, after all, she did do that, Um, which is troubling. (laughs) I think it's troubling to the Western mind because we don't like to think that, you know, you know, your wife dies and you're like, well, she had it coming. I mean, eh, that doesn't sound so nice. That's the number one. Number two, you'll have to admit this. This is um, forty years later. I'm sorry, I lied. It's fifty-four years later. This is fifty-four years after that, right? Because when at least it's at minimum fifty-four years later. Because when Sarah said Lecha, when Sarah invoked the heavenly judgment upon Avraham, that was. That was before, that was a previous pregnancy to Yishmael. And Yishmael is 13 years older than Yitzhak, and at this point, Yitzhak is 40. So it's at least it's at least 54 years later. Why does Avraham think this has anything to do with that? If you're saying, well, God killed her because she invoked the judgment, then she should have dropped dead half, half a century ago. All of a sudden, she dies at 127, and Avraham's like, well, you know, she had it coming. It's very weird. 
It's so weird. But of course, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to tell you. I'm not going to be overly dramatic, but I'm going to tell you what the shot is. But first, I'm going to have some coffee. Do you know all of the arguments between Sarah and Abraham revolved around one thing? Same thing every time. Sarah's status as the mother of the family. So first, the maidservant gets pregnant and starts looking at Sarah, looking down at her. And Sarah's like, what do you think this is? What do you think? Of what? what you think because because you're fertile? And I'm sterile that you're in charge just because I have a bi- biological issue. Let's see. Let's see. She's not okay with other people taking motherhood status in the Avrahamic family. What happens? She kick out Hagar twice after her son is born. This, this guy this child of a maidservant is not going to inherit with my son. Get him out of here. She is threatened by Yishmael. How come Avraham wasn't threatened by Yishmael? Ever wonder that? Why didn't Avraham think it was a problem? Doesn't he know that Hashem said, Ki bi ki Doesn't he know that, that the entire future of the Jewish people is going to come through Yitzchak? He certainly does know that. He most assuredly knows that. And yet he's not threatened. Why isn't he threatened? Because Hashem said he's going to have a baby. He's going to call me Yitzhak and everything's going to be Sababa. So why should I be threatened? Why should I be threatened by any extraneous thing? So he's not. But Sarah is. Sarah is every time, time and time again. Which, of course, explains to us. We said, well, I don't understand. What do you mean by Yuchaye Sarah? She dropped dead abruptly out of nowhere. The answer is, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, exactly. She dropped dead out of nowhere. What do you mean? She, why did she drop that out of nowhere? Everybody knows the Medrash, but now all of a sudden the Medrash makes sense. The last thing that we just read was Akedah Sietzak. Hashem comes to Avraham and says, take your kid and put him on an altar and shecht him. And Avraham's like, got it. 8 a.m., clickety-clack, I'm on the way. Sarah hears, oh yeah, by the way, Avraham went to go shecht your kid. <gasps> Dies. Same thing. So Avraham comes back and finds his wife dead. You know what his first emotion is? He's a little bit upset at her. You don't believe me? Ask Hazal. He had a little cuff in there. And Litzvot comes first. He had to be, he had to eulogize her before he could feel the sadness of her loss because he was upset. And he said, but what do you mean? She said that she invoked this heavenly judgment 50 years earlier. Yes, she invoked the heavenly judgment of her insecurity regarding her children 50 years earlier. And it came to a head three days ago when she heard that God said, take your kid and kill him. And immediately she dropped dead instead of saying, God, high five. I know everything will be great. It's the same problem. So she dies. Therefore, it's a small cough of Livkosa. So, of course, after he sophied her, after he eulogizes her, at that point, he's broken. In fact, Chazal explained to us in the Medrash that, that after Sarah died, he was utterly devastated. Devastated. Which is, of course, why he turns around and says, go get a bride for Yitzhak because I might not be around tomorrow. I can drop dead tomorrow. Now that Sarah's gone, I don't, I don't know how long, how long I'm going to last. Well, so what does he do? 
he gets up and he goes to the Neches and he says, well, uh, give me, I would like to buy, I'd like to buy a burial plot, please, por favor. And as we mentioned earlier, if you read this, it's very, very strange because it's so circuitous. Like Avram's like, I'd like to buy a thing, uh, introduce me to Ephron. And Ephron says, oh, great, I'll give it to you for free. And Ephron's like, no, 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 please let me give you money. And Ephron's like, no, nah, really, I want it for free. And Ephron's like, no, please let me give you money. And Ephron says, fine, give me money, 400 shekels. Why? Why? And there's one word that keeps coming up again and again and again. Shema'eni. Shema'eni. Shema'uni. Shema'eni. What does that word mean? It means hear me. Hear me. Hear what I'm saying to you. Which means the fact that that word comes up repeatedly means that every time it's being said, something is shifting. Something's shema'eni. Listen to what I'm saying. Not just my words, but what I mean. So let's go into the psukim and watch the evolution of a negotiation. Because it's really not a negotiation at all. Avraham comes to the Bnei Ches and he says, I would like, please, for your permission to bury my dead in your, in your steachuza. In your nachala. This is the land of Bnei Ches. Ches, for those of you who don't know, is the second child of Kenan. Ches is the second born son of Kenan. So he comes to Bnei Ches and he says, I would like to uh, have a burial plot here. And the Bnei Ches answer him. They say, Adoni, listen to us. You're coming here and you're saying you want us to give you a place to bury. Listen to us. Hear what we're saying. You are the Pope. You are the Pope and the Kohen Gadol and the Dalai Lama wrapped up into one guy. Listen to what they say. It's unbelievable. What does that mean? It means not a man among us wouldn't let you put your wife in his grave. Did you hear that? His grave. There could be no greater honor. This is the grave. You know, like so those of us who are from uh, old families, um, you know, you got like your ancestral plots, right? This is where the right, this is where the McGillicuddy family, we're all here. Yeah. And you've got like, you know, this is where grandma is, and this is where dad's gonna go. And then in a hundred years, I'm gonna be right there. And you know where you're going. Like, but wait a minute, if Avraham shows up and says, Listen, if you don't mind, I would like to be buried here, please. <laughs> yes, to have to have the the Amramskis, the Amramsins. Who would I'm sorry, not the Amramsins, the the Avinus. Who wouldn't want the Avinus in their family mausoleum? Like, of course you do. Listen, what Avraham does, unbelievable. If you want to understand a little psychology, what does Avraham do after they speak to him? He bows. He bows. Why is that there? You notice he doesn't do it once. He does it a couple times. You know what happens every time he bows? Every time he bows, he disagrees. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Every time he bows, he disagrees. If you want to excel in business, ladies and gentlemen, listen to Zadie Avi. Don't argue with people. Don't say no. Hear them out, and then bow, and then say no. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So he says, 
if you if you really want to bury my dead, Shmauni, hear me out. What do you mean, hear me out? Just say what you want to say. Ah, ah, ah. Because you think I want a place to put my wife. You're wrong. I don't want a place to put my wife. I want the place, a specific place. Shmauni ufi uli ben You have to introduce me to Effie. And of course, you understand that that ufi uli does not merely mean and introduce me, but altifka ubi means to beseech on my behalf. Pray for me to Ephron ben Sohar. And let him give to me the double cave that's on the edge of his field. For full money, full money, let him give it to me. And Ephron, Ephron is sitting among the Benichais, as Rashi explains, because at the moment, listen, if Avraham needs you, they call you up from the from the reserves. You know, you're you're a starter now. So they call him up. And what does he say? And Ephron replies, Lo Adoni, Shmaini. No, sir, listen to me. Again, Shmaini. Shmaini, listen to me. Because I disagree with you. Lo Adoni, Shmaini. Which, by the way, you never hear Avraham say. Because when Avraham disagrees, he doesn't say no. He bows and then and then tells you something else. He doesn't say no. He's saying no, he doesn't say no. Ephron, eh, not the greatest businessman. He's a chiti. He says, I'll give you the field and I give you the cave. It's free. Well, what do you expect Avraham to do? What he does every time, right? He's the man's consistent. Bows down. And he says to Ephron, But if you'll hear me, what does Avraham not say? No. <laughs> no. Ah, if you listen, what's the difference between what Ephron is saying and what Avram is saying? It's all there in the words. Was Avraham interested in buying a field? No. Avram shows up at the Bnei Ches and he says, He'll give me his cave that's in the corner of his field. Was he going to buy the field? Why would he buy the field? Avram's not interested in a field. What does Ephron say? Ephron shows up and says, no, 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 no. I give you, you can have the field and the cave in it. And Avram hears what he's saying. Avram hears what he's saying. What's the main thing to Ephron? The cave or the field? The field. He doesn't care about the cave. It's a cave. Do you know how many fruits grow in a cave? I'll give you a hint. They tied the world record for fewest number of fruits ever grown at zero. What's he in a cave for so he says, Hasoden I gave you the field, Vahama Arashirbo, and the and the cave. And Avram's like, field? <laughs> Who wants a field? I don't need no field. So Avram then says to him, If only, however, you listen to me. I'll buy the field from you. If I buy the field, the cave is in the field. I'll take the cave. Cave's in the field. I'll buy the field. Why? Because for Ephron, it's all about money. And for Avram, it's all about a cave. <laughs> That's what's happening with the Shema'ini. 
So Avram hears Ephron so well. If you think, by the way, that the last two words in this story, over la socher, was an international currency. If you think that that's a, that's a small point, why does Avraham pay Ephron with bullion, with Bitcoin? Why does he pay Ephron with Bitcoin and not, not yen or pesos? Because he listens to Ephron. You don't believe me? You don't believe me? Read the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Vayishma Avraham el Ephron. And Avraham listened to Ephron. And he paid him out the money that he said. You know which words you don't need? He listened. All you have to say is, and Avraham paid him. And I know he listened. He heard him. He's not deaf. He heard. And he paid him. Avraham el Ephron means Avraham listened to Ephron and understood what was going on in Ephron's mind. That's what it's saying. So Ephron says, originally, oh, take the field, take the cave. Great. Why? Because what's in it for me? What's in it for me is everyone's going to know that I gave it to him. I donated. I donated the mausoleum of the Avinu family. And Avram's like, no, thank you. There will not be any plaque to the Ephronites for donating the mausoleum of the Avinu clan. I will buy it. It's like, oh, you'll buy it? Ah, $4 million between friends. What's a big deal? Hmm. $4 million, huh? If it's $4 million for that field... Then if I give you four million in pesos, you're gonna say, you know, the pesos were low that day. You know, that Jew, he gave me, he gave me the worst currency in the world. I did him a favor. I took pesos. Avraham listened to Ephron. And Avraham paid him over la socher bitcoin. Bullion. That's why. It's all about the details. Now, you, know, you say, why did Avraham, this, this is very important. I mean, you all know this, but, but it's very important to reiterate anyway. Why does Avraham want to go there anyhow? I say, well, because Adam is buried there. Oh, because Adam's buried there. Now that makes sense to me. Avraham wants to bury Sarah there because Adam and Eve are buried there. So? So what? I'm, I'm sorry. You understand that actually does not answer the question whatsoever. What, what do you mean? Adam is buried. Therefore, Avraham wants to be buried there. That doesn't follow. Well, it's a cool place to be buried. You know, be buried next to Mix Jagger. That's cool too. I mean, why? The answer is Avraham sees himself, of course, as an extension of Adam Harishim, because we know there's ten generations between Adam and Noah, and there's ten generations between Noah and Avraham, and Avraham is the next evolution of man. And that's why, if we go all the way back to Barashas, we don't have time to do this right now. But if you go all the way back to Barashas, Ela told the as Chalzal explained, I'll take you to Eleba Avraham. Avraham is the evolution of the world. The world is only created so you can have a human being that can connect to Akadosh Baruch Hu. It's the only reason that God created man in the place. That's Avraham. So Avraham has to go and connect all the way back to Adam Harishon, which of course makes sense because who is he buying the field from? Ephron ben Sochar. Shiny dirt. He buys, he buys the burial plot from Mr. Dirt, Mr. Afar, Mr. Ephraim. Now, I know you think, okay, Sprung, that's clever, but like, that's not true, right? Watch this. So this crazy possum, this is nuts. Pasuk says, all in Shlach, we're going we're gonna to jump through our time vortex, and we're going to come out 400 years later, approximately. So we're in Parsha Shlach, and this is, of course, Avraham has been in the ground for a very, very long time. And uh, the Meraglim are going to Eretz Yisrael. The Jews are in the desert, and they send these spies to go into Israel. 
it, it, spoiler alert, it was it's not a good story. And 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 they go up the Negev and, and he comes to Hebron. And there was Achimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, the children of the giant. The Hebron Sheva and Hebron had been built seven years before Tzoan of Egypt. So when it says in the Pasuk, they ascended in the south and he arrived at Hebron, Rashi explains, Rashi explains, what does it mean he arrived at Hebron? So he cites the Gemara. The Gemara says, oh, it's Kalev. Kalev went to pray. Kalev went to Davin. He went to pray at, at the graves of his ancestors. Who are the graves of his ancestors? At the Mara Samach Pela, which is in Hebron. So when it says, Hebron, that he came to Hebron, it means Kalev went to Hebron specifically so he could daven at the, at the graves of his ancestors, um, that in their zechus, Hashem should give him the, the strength to withstand the evil and nefarious plot of the Miraglim. That's a wonderful word. What a beautiful Torah that the Gemara clearly made up. How do you see that in the Pasuk? Where did the Pasuk say that anyone at where, where does it say graves in the Pasuk? Where does it say praying in the Pasuk? It says, and they went up in the south and he came to Hebron. Who says he was praying at the at, at Kivri Avos? They say, well, because Vayavo is singular. So he went to Hebron. Oh, that's a great answer. So he went there to see a concert. Where does it say that he went there to, to pray at Kivri Avos? That's not in the book. I mean, maybe I got the wrong book. The answer to that question, the answer to that question is to be found in the second half of the Pasuk, which makes no sense. No sense. Again, the Pasuk is, And they went up in the south, and he came to Hebron, and there were these giants. And Hebron was built seven years before Tzohan in Egypt. What? what? What does that mean? Hebron was built seven years before it's so on of Egypt. Who cares? What are we talking? We're talking about the 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 history of the city building now? In the middle of nowhere? Tell me when was when was the Eshkol built? And when was the Bashan built? Doesn't tell you. Why doesn't it tell you? Because who bloody cares? What do you mean? But the Gemara doesn't ask that question. Where is a different question? The Gemara says, I don't understand. How could you say that Hebron was built before Tzohan? Tzohan is in Egypt and Hebron is in Canaan. Again, Tzohan is in Egypt and Hebron is in Canaan. And for those of you who are good with the family tree, you know that Mitzrayim, Egypt, is older than Canaan because they're each sons of Cham. Cham has four sons. Kush, Mitzrayim, Ufut, Canaan. Which means Mitzrayim, Egypt, is older than Canaan. Which means presumably, the Gemara assumes, that the cities would have been built for Mitzrayim before they were built for Canaan. So if the Gemara asks, how can that be? So Gemara says, wait a minute. After Adam Bonet Bayis live no cotton, Kodum live no Godel. How could it be that you build, you build a house for your younger son before your older son? Nowadays it's not a Shiloh because he got married earlier with the Shiduchim. But back then it was a Shiloh. How could it be? So Mara says, ah, oh, no, what it means is, what it really means, it was seven times nicer than so on. Hebron was seven times nicer than so on. And there is no more rocky place and barren place than Hebron, which is filled with graves. 
And there is no nicer place than Egypt. And there is no nicer place in Egypt than so on. And still you see that Hebron is seven times nicer than so on. So again, I want to put this to you. So it's saying that Hebron is the, the cruddiest land in Israel. And it's seven times nicer than the nicest land in Egypt, which is nicer than all the other places in the Middle East. Okay. But you have the answer now, don't you? I'm going to say it slower this time. Umar says, There is no place that's more rocky and barren in Israel than Hebron. Because that's where they bury all the dead people. Oh, so the Pasuk that talks to you about how nice Hebron is in the same Pasuk that says, and he came to Hebron, is, is alluding to the fact that Hebron is filled with what? Graves. And therefore, the Gemara says, avos. He went to the graves. Because otherwise, what the heck is the Pasuk doing telling you? But it tells you something more than that. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's not the pshat. It's not the pshat that people bury their dead in Hebron. Hebron was created for burial. Kivri Boshichvi. Hebron was created as a chibor, as a connection to the ground. The greatest connection to the ground, of course, comes when you're in the ground. It's created for death. It's there for Kfarim. So Avram says, there's only one place in the whole world that I can put Sarah. And it's there. And it's there. Now, after that happens, right after that, Avraham's old. So he says, he says to Eliezer, you're going to make an oath. Yes, swear to me. Swear to me. You're going to go to my family in Aram the Harayim. You're going to take a bride for my son, for Yitzchak, from there. And Eliezer's like, well, what if she doesn't want to come with me? He goes, should I take Yitzchak over there to Iraq? And he goes, dear Balak. <laughs> Don't you dare. Don't you dare do that. Rather, Don't you dare bring my kid there. Hashem, who told me and spoke to me and swore to me, saying he's going to give me this land, he... He will send his angel before you and you'll take a wife from there. And if the woman doesn't want to come, then I release you from the oath. Just don't take my kid there. You know what that means? It's unbelievable. You, if you read it, if you read it on a simple level, you think that the main idea is that Eliezer goes over there to get a wife. That's not the main idea. That's the second most important idea. The most important idea is that Yitzhak doesn't leave. How do you know? Because first he says, get a wife from Iraq. And Elias says, what if she doesn't want to go? Should I bring your boy there? He says, don't you dare. I'll let you free from the oath to get a wife from there. But I won't let you free from the oath of taking my son out. So that means that taking Yitzhak out of Israel is more important, meaning not to do that, than it is to get a wife from Eretz Malati. Unbelievable. So of course... 
listen to what Avram said. I mean, this is like is unbelievable because when Akash Baruch comes to Avram, he says he's Halech Lefanai The difference between Avraham on the one hand and Noah on the other hand, and all the other to the end that came before him, like Hanoch, Batele Hanoch Esa Elohim Ve'Ineinu Kilakachaso Elohim. Up until Avraham Avinu, the Tzadikim walked with Hashem. Avraham was he's Halech Lefanai. He walked before Hashem, meaning he took actions on his own, on his own, thinking that Hashem would approve, which is a much higher level than just doing what you're told. And therefore, he looks to, to Eliezer. Eliezer says, well, what happens if the girl doesn't want to, you know, this and that? And they'll say no. And da, da, da. And Avram looks in the eye and he says, he says, Hashem asher his alachdi lefanav. The Hashem, the God that I walked before him, who yishlach malachol lefanecha? He's going to work it out for you. It's all going to be there. Don't worry about that. You go where you need to go, and everything will be fine. Remember, Avraham doesn't have the same insecurities that his, that his, uh, his deceased wife had. And have those insecurities. It's no problem. Go. Everything's going to... So what happens? Eliezer jumps in the Ferrari. Ten Ferraris. They gas him up. And they vroom vroom. And they vroom vroom down to uh, around the Harayim. What happens? Eliezer shows up and he goes, just listen, Hashem, how am I supposed to know which chica is the right one? I, Mrs. Winselberg isn't here. I can't ask her. I don't know. How am I going to know? What am I going to do? I got a great idea. I got a great idea. It'll be, I'm going to go to the girl and I'm going to say, do you mind if I have a sip of your Coca-Cola? And the girl who says, I will give you Coca-Cola and I'll put gas in your car. That's the one for Yitzhak. Oh, marvelous. Now, now the Gemara, of course, asks, and was like, oh, that's a silly thing to do because what happens if there was a very nice girl with three legs and one eye and then a wing coming out of her shoulder blade? Like, I mean, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be very good, right? You're laughing at me with the Gemara. The Gemara asks that question. Gomorrah says, I understand. He's making some he's making some kind of some kind of a stupid he's making some kind of stupid deal with God. What happens if a very nice girl is willing to put gas in his Ferrari and it happens to be that uh a lot of back knee? I'm gonna face this, right? Like what, what would be? What would be? I, I tell you why I don't understand the Gomorrah's question. I don't understand the Gomorrah's question. I understand it. Let me tell you why I don't understand it. How is he going to choose which girl he goes to first? Hmm. Do you think Eliezer was going to walk over to the three-legged hunchback and ask her for a schluck of her Diet Coke? No! Of course not. He's only going to walk over to the girls that he thinks would be a good match, and none of, none of them have three legs, right? So it's not a Shiloh. It's not a Shiloh. He's saying from the girls that I'll ask for some Diet Coke, then I'll know from them. But he's only going over to them. By the way, how do you know I'm right? I mean, obviously I'm not right because the more I ask the question, so I'm wrong. But, but here's how you know I'm right. It says, it says, He wasn't even finished talking. And Rivka's coming out. And she's got her jug. And she's, and she's gorgeous. And she's a virgin and she doesn't play around with the boys. And she went and she puts her, you know, she's not, she doesn't have time for messing around. She goes, she gets her petel and she starts walking. And the servant runs, runs to her. Why did he run to her? 
Weren't, weren't there other people there? It says he showed up. He showed up to Ben Yehuda Street at 8.30 on a Thursday night. All the seminary girls are there. Why Why is he running after this one? It already told you why he's running after this one. Rebunish Shalom was the previous busing. The busing says, She's gorgeous. Well, he's going to start there. I mean, why not? Right? After all, we know we know that his his previous master's wife, not his previous master's wife, his master's previous wife was quite beautiful. And in fact, the measure says that Rivka looked like Sarah. Oh, is that too weird for you? I'm sorry. If that's too weird for you, just wait till you get to the end of the Parsha where it says that Rivka was Sarah. Now it's a psychological problem. But you understand it's not so strange. It sounds so strange. Why isn't it strange? Because there's a family resemblance. Have you ever met a cutler before? Have you ever met a cutler? Well, if you have, you know that they have essentially, um, oh, I think I may have frozen. Did I freeze? No, I'm good. Ah, fantastic. If you've met a cutler, you know they have they have lightsaber eyes. That's how you know Star Wars is real. You know Star Wars is real because you've met a Varen Cutler, right? You say Shalom Aleichem, right? Is that right? They they all have they have the eyes. They have the eyes, right? There's a it's a family thing. Was Rifka related to Sarah? Oh, you betcha. Oh, you betcha. Not just related. I'm going to show you how related she was. So everything that the Torah tells you in this Parsha, it repeats the entire story, the whole story. And I went and I said, Tashem. And you're like, oh, my gosh, how many times you can tell me this? But, but there are a few like little discrepancies. There are a few teeny tiny discrepancies between what actually happened and what Eliezer tells the family of Rivka. And you understand that the whole reason that Torah repeated it for you, the whole reason was for the discrepancies. Every time that Eliezer told a lie, every time that Eliezer told a lie, that's why the Torah repeated it. The Torah repeats the story because of the lies. And they seem small. They ain't small. They're huge. Now, I'll go a step further. I'll tell you that the only reason that the Torah tells you the whole story, the whole original story, is to show you the discrepancy between what happened and what he says. Because we asked originally, who needs to know all this stuff? Can I tell you what my favorite lie is from the whole story? There's a lot of lies. There's a lot of lies. I'll tell you a small one first, and then I'll tell you a big one. A small one would be, Eliezer says, I'm going to ask the girl, I'm going to ask the girl, can I have a, can I have a sip of your Coke? And if she says, yeah, you can have, and also I'll give a little sip to your camels. That's the girl, but that's not what she says. She says, you can drink and then I'll draw for your camels until they're finished drinking. He does not tell her family that she said that. Why not? Because they'd slap her upside the head. Are you kidding? How much water did you give that guy? You, you gave his kid. What? What? They'd be incredibly angry at her. He doesn't tell them that. He leaves that out. That's a small lie. Small in that you'll understand the character of the family versus the character of Rivka. You want to hear the biggest lie? Who is my favorite? This is a goosey lie. Goosebumps. So after 
she finishes this, right? Again, he comes to the well and he davens to Hashem. And this is, of course, after, after Avraham had said to him, Hashem, well, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. It's going to be there, man. It's going to be there. Just go. Just aim that way and go and everything's going to be Baba. And he shows up and he sees this gorgeous girl and he runs over to her and he says, hey, can I have a shluk? And she says, not only that, I'm going to put gas in all your Ferraris. And he waits the whole time. He waits. He's, by the way, he's like impassively waits. Means he was poker face. Poker face. Because he's like, I can't push this in any direction. I have to see where this is going. This is insane. And the second they finish the drink, he slams $100,000 Patek Philippe on her wrist and goes, Basmiat, Hagidi Nali, who's your daddy? He already gave her the money. Somebody tells the family, right? He tells them he asked her first, but that's not true. That's not true. He gives her the money and says, who's your daddy? And she goes, oh, ah, Bas Bisuel Anochi, Ben Milka, Ashil Del Nachor. I am the daughter of Bisuel, son of Milka, who she bore to Nachor. And he just falls down. And I mean, if you, re- if you, if you are open-minded enough, if you are vulnerable enough, and honest enough with yourself to close your eyes and, and be there for a minute. Here's a guy who took a journey to a city that he's never been before to find a wife for his master's son. And he pulls up in the driveway of his master's brother's house. So when it says, you can imagine that moment. Like, listen, listen to what he says. Blessed is Hashem, the God of my master Abraham. That he did not let go of his chesed and MS, right? This is dying wish, essentially, from my master. My, Hashem drove me straight to the driveway of my master's brother. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. But when he talks to the family and he says, and I asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. And she says, Oh, I am the daughter of Besuel, the son of Nahor, born to him by Milka. Liar. You lie. You lie. That's not what she said. There's a little bit of a uh, flip. Hmm? She says, Bas ben milka asher When she talks, who does she say first? Nachor or Milka? I'll give you a hint. Milka. She says Milka first. Who's Milka? Her Bobby. Bobby Milky. Everybody loves Bobby Milky. I am the daughter of Basuel, son of Milka, born to Nachor. But see, that's very embarrassing. Why is that embarrassing? Because what self-respecting chauvinist would have his wife's name first on the wedding invitation? And therefore, when the, when the Eved tells Besuel what she says, she says, oh, I'm the daughter of Besuel, son of Nachor, born to Milka. Liar. Well, why did she say Milka? Because nobody cares about Nachor. Nachor is a turd muffin. But you know who we care about a lot? Milka. Who's Milka? 
Milka, I'm trying to remember, had a sister. Can't remember. Oh, right, Sara, because there's two daughters of Haran. One is Sara, one is Milka. We want Milka's progeny. Nahor's progeny? Meh. Eh. But the girls? We want the girls. Don't believe me? Here are the girls that we want from the Haranian line. Sara, Milka, Rachel, Leah, Rivka, and the daughters of Lot, Ammon and Moab. What do they all have in common? Haran. They're all the daughters of Haran. We don't like the sons of Haran so much. We like the daughters. Which is really cool because you know what the word Haran means? Think about it. Think about it. Haran. They're pregnancies. <laughs> right? Right? That's what we're interested in. Horaso Biktusha, Leidasa Shalabiktusha. Right? Haran. There, feminine, not haram, but haran. There, conceptions is what we want. Feminine, with the nun at the end. Nun sofit. That's what we're interested in. Not so much the men. Well, of course, that makes sense. So that's why she looks like Sarah. It's family resemblance. And when he takes her back to Yitzchak, it's a crazy medrash. Medrash says, Vayiviyel Yitzchak ha'ola Sarah imo. And Yitzchak brings her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. And, and the Medrash says, he brings her to the tent. And she was Sarah, his mother. Ew. So, oh, well, it means because as long as Sarah was alive, there was a magic candle that would go from Erev Shabbos to Erev Shabbos. And the dough never went bad. She had fantastic kakush cake. And uh, there was always a cloud over the tent. Sarah was a meteorologist. And now when she died, there was no more Roman candle and there was no more caucus cake and there's no more cloudy day. That was very sad. And now that, that he marries Rivka, everything is Zavava again. Well, what does that mean? So I've said this before and I'll say it again because I think it's very, very important, especially because I'm talking to a bunch of guys who are going to get married very, very soon. Um, you understand that that a Nair and an Isa and a an Anan refer to different elements of femininity and of the the wife's contribution to the home. For those of you who are not aware, everybody knows that that Jewish women light candles on Erev Shabbos, but not everybody knows that the reason that we do that is for Shalom Bias. Those of you who are familiar with the Gemara and Shabbos. Um, we, we, light, we light Shabbos candles for Shalom Bayez. Shalom Bayez. Shalom Bayez does not mean that you don't scream at your wife in front of the guests. That's not what Shalom Bayez means. Um, I mean, that's, <laughs> it's not not Shalom Bayez. I'm just saying, if that's what you're aspiring towards, man, it's not, raise the bar, right? So Shalom Bayez means that there should be an excitement an excitement, a passion. That's Shalom Bayez. A fire. A fire. And the woman is in charge of that. She's in charge of that. She's the driver of that. And then there's the dough. There's the Isa. 
It never went bad. Erev Shabbos, Erev Shabbos, never went bad, the dough. So what, she had She had magic cake? No. No. You know what it means that Sarah had magic cake? And I, I, I can promise you that your mothers had magic cake, too. Your mothers had magic cake, too. Because, and this, man, I've seen this happen, okay? I've seen this happen. You know, sometimes this is growing up. I didn't know this, but now that you know, I'm, I'm now I know this. Um, the dough doesn't always rise. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't rise inexplicably, right? Like you go to Publix and you bring the you bring the yeast and, and it doesn't rise. And then, of course, your wife says, "Go back to Publix and buy more yeast," which is why you should have bought more in the first place. You should have known that. Never buy one pack of yeast. I'm telling you right now. You always buy four, <laughs> just in case. Yeah, you gotta buy four. What? So what happens if the dough doesn't rise? What do you mean what happens if the dough doesn't rise? Well, you think you're not going to have challah on Shabbos if the dough didn't rise? You think you'd have bad challah on Shabbos? No, she's going to throw it out. She's going to make another one. The dough never went bad. Why did it never go bad? Because she made sure that the dough never went bad. And there was an anan, kosher ala ohel. There was a, a cloud connected. You're like, what's, what's the cloud? The cloud's the shechina. Come on, you know that, right? The Shechina is always near Well, you probably noticed that the word Shechina is feminine and that it manifests in a cloud because the spirituality in the house does not belong to you. You can say, that's ridiculous. I'm the man. I'm the big yeshiva bochir talmid chachem Yeah, okay. Good for you. Yeah, you can read as, as many as many uh, Rib Shimons and as many Shev Shemites as, as you want, that has nothing to do with the Shechina. Nothing. Shechina? That's the woman. And when Sarah died, no more age and no more Kakush and no more cloud. And then Rivka comes in, the daughter of Milka, the sister of Sarah, and there's the fire, and there's the Esau, and there's the cloud all over again. All over again. You say, you know, Sarah dies rather abruptly in the beginning of the Parsha, and generally it tells you about the person's life before it tells you that they died, and therefore it's very strange to all of a sudden talk about Sarah's death when it doesn't tell you about the influence of Sarah. And then, of course, you realize that the entirety of the Parsha of Chaye Sarah is describing the influence of Sarah. And the ongoing influence of Sarah, of course, manifests through her eventual daughter-in-law and niece named Rivka. That's the idea. I think that's a good start for this week's Parsha. Have a beautiful Shabbos. Peace and love. This has been a Platforms podcast. Please share it with your friends. If you can think of one person to send it to, please take the time. It truly is the best way to help us out. If you have any comments or suggestions, please go and email platformspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. 